morning to all of you this morning. Generally in Africa, our family delights and thanks God for every breeze. Is that enough said? <laughs> Thank God for buildings and walls that keep out breezes. That is a cold wind this morning. I'm delighted to have the chance to share with you um, again this morning and um, happily meeting one by one, meeting more of you. And I uh, just pray that God will make these days fruitful in your lives. I take seriously um, my responsibility to not waste your time. And I believe you came here for a reason. I'm praying that your reason for coming and God's reason for bringing you here would be fulfilled in your lives in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, I want to give you a, a little free bonus here right at the beginning. Uh, sometimes the Lord lays secondary burdens on my heart, and as we were singing our theme song, which I like very much, as we were singing our theme song, I was thinking about um, you young people and about the fact that it may be that you have always considered the Christian life outside of the context of war and struggle. It's possible that you have viewed missionaries or maybe pastors, as being the ones who are engaged in spiritual warfare. And it's possible that you, they, that you have viewed your own, quote, ordinary church member Christian life through an, an, another lens. And so when we sing songs which talk about the battle, battling for the right and rallying around the flag, that kind of sounds like military talk, and that's not really how we view our Christian lives. I want to take us briefly to 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> I believe that when you got born again, when you chose to follow Jesus Christ, you entered into the kingdom of his dear son. And that kingdom is a kingdom just like any other kingdom. It's, in some ways, it's not like any other kingdom, but it is like every other kingdom in terms of having a master, a director, a lord, a, a king who guides that kingdom. And just like every other kingdom in the world, that kingdom has enemies. And specifically, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is diametrically opposed by the power or the lord of this world, Satan's power, the, the kingdom of darkness, whatever name you want to put on it. When you joined up with Jesus' kingdom by becoming a member of his family, you automatically signed up to join in the warfare between these two kingdoms. And I think sometimes we've done you all a disservice I mean we as in the older generation, have done you a disservice in not using enough um, military-type words, military-type encouragement and pictures, and maybe then when someone speaks to you about fighting for Christ or fighting the spiritual warfare or fighting against Satan, it sounds like something that, that seems strange to you. And I believe that 
all of us should recognize that whether we feel like we signed up for a battle or not, when we became members of Christ's family, we joined up with the warfare that is going on between the two kingdoms. Most of you here come from an Anabaptist background. One of the unique things about Anabaptist background people is that we believe in a theology of two kingdoms, and that's one of the underlying pillars why we don't fight for the kingdoms of this world. As Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would fight, which is implying that because my kingdom is not of this world, my people are not fighting. My disciples are not out here fighting in a physical sense to, to keep me safe. Paul says the, king, the, the battles that we're fighting are not physical battles. We're not fighting with, with swords and spears and arrows, but we are fighting a spiritual battle. And so um, I sometimes think that we've developed a very complacent type of Christianity in which we think we're not all called to fight. I said to someone the other day, I am absolutely not a pacifist. I am absolutely not a pacifist. I choose not to fight for the kingdom of this world because I have chosen to fight for Christ's kingdom. That's very different than being a peace lover who just loves peace so much that I don't want to kill anybody, including any animals. You know, I'm a pacifist. I'm a vegetarian. I don't want to hurt people and I don't want to hurt animals. I am not a pacifist. I have chosen to fight for another kingdom, and that's why I don't fight for this kingdom. I have chosen to accept the lordship of the other kingdom, and the demonstration that Christ made of suffering love advises me that I should not fight in a physical dimension. So I fight on a spiritual dimension. Sometimes I think we've gotten half of that and not gotten the other half of it. We are called to fight. We are called to be militant. We are called to be soldiers. And the fact that we are not called to arm ourselves with guns or tanks and fight against our real or perceived enemies or to fight for the enemy, against the enemies of our nation does not in any way mean that we're not called to fight. We are called to fight. We're called to be so busy fighting for his kingdom and fighting against the darkness around us that we don't have time to fight for the kingdoms of this world. Let's read from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. This is one of the favorite verses of people who um, approach the Christian life from a pacifist, complacency, quiet in the land sort of perspective. We are told that when we pray, we should pray for our government, for our kings, for our mayors, for those who are in authority, so that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. If you're not reading in context, you could walk away and say, the will of God is for all of us to enjoy a quiet and peaceable life. And I've heard that preached. 
I remember being in a, visiting another church when I was about 15 years old, and the, the man who gave the devotions read these verses and advised us to pray for our president and said that verse 3 says, it is good and acceptable in the sight of God for all of us to keep living a quiet and peaceful life. And even at 15, I just could not. I could barely stay sitting. Maybe I get a little too worked up. Some of you are looking at me like I get a little too worked up, so I'm keeping a lid on it for you. I don't want to offend you. But in my heart, I, was, I wanted to just stand up, and it would have really shocked him if I would have. I wanted to stand up and say, read the next verse. Sorry. <laughs> read the next verse. You can create all sorts of false theologies by picking and choosing certain verses. What is good and acceptable in the sight of God is not the quiet and peaceable life in isolation, but a quiet and peaceable life which lends itself towards verse 5, towards verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And we could go on, you know, go on down through there. He says, I've been ordained a preacher of this gospel. If you use at all the context of these verses and you view at all the context of Paul's life, Paul was not here elevating all of us should live a quiet and peaceful life because that's what God wants. He was elevating that what we should do is pray for our government so that our government keeps things peaceful enough that you and I can spend our energies bringing the lost to Christ. What is good and acceptable in the sight of God is that all men would come to the knowledge of salvation. And so I believe a biblical view of our life as Christians is that we come into the faith and immediately are signed up as soldiers. Here's the thing. If you don't realize that you're signed up as a soldier, you may not understand why immediately when you make a choice for Christ, Satan turns his, his arrows against you. He turns his arrows against you because he identifies you as immediately being part of the opposing force. Does that make sense? You've signed up. When you choose to follow the Lord Jesus and to place yourself under his lordship, you've signed up. You're on duty, whether you recognize it or not. And Satan fights against those of us who have chosen to follow Christ because we're part of the other kingdom. He fights against you, he fights against you less if you believe that God's will is for me to just have a quiet and peaceful life. And we could multiply ourselves into a thousand North American communities, filling North American communities with lovely, little, peaceful Anabaptist churches. We could do that till kingdom come and the kingdom might not come if that's all we ever do. Because we're called to be representatives of Christ. And all throughout the New Testament, the pictures that are given to us of our faith is of an active going on the offensive, bringing other people to Jesus, suffering because of propagating the gospel, not quiet and peaceful life where I just signed on the, the, the farm next door so that my son can move over there when he gets married. So 
If we've given you the wrong picture, as in the older generation, please forgive us. But the picture that is painted in that song that we're singing as our theme song is the biblical picture. I'm not saying it's the only biblical picture. There remaineth yet a rest for the people of God. There are verses like that in Scripture, and I, I believe they need to be held in balance. But I believe that that song communicates rightly the militant marching forward, raising the flag of Christ in all the dark places of the world. I believe that is the biblical approach that you and I should have as New Testament believers. So... When you pray for your president or your prime minister, don't pray, Lord, please keep this nation stable so I can keep living peacefully. I mean, wow. Talk about a me-centered prayer. Lord, I'm praying for my president. Whatever he does, Lord, just, Lord, help him keep the peace. I just want to keep living a quiet and peaceful life. Our quiet, peaceful lives are coming. That's probably not going to happen until we get beyond the pearly gates. Okay, we'll have lots of time for that now. Right now, it's time for us to, to, to war and fight and raise the flag of Christ and enter the dark places and shine a light. May God help you to recognize that approach as being the biblical one. All right, you ready to go back to 2 Corinthians and chapter 5? <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 5. We have seven points that we'd like to walk through this morning. We're still answering the question uh, from myself and from Paul, why am I a missionary? What are the underlying motivations? Now, obviously, if we went throughout the whole New Testament, there would be lots of other motivations that we're not covering here. And I, as I continue reading and studying this chapter over the years, I keep finding more of them. But I, I don't want us to have a you know 28 points, so we're gonna we're gonna consolidate them and just have seven today. Seven reasons from one chapter of that Paul is giving as his reasons for being a missionary. And I, because all of you here are young people, and almost all of you will still be in your home state six months from now, I want to make sure that when I'm talking about reasons for being a missionary, that you're not picturing passports and 14-hour flights. Our brother just laid out for us the needs of the country that we live in. And we need to recognize that going to exotic locations does not turn you into a missionary. If you can drive by the homeless and the down and outers and the abortion clinics and the sin all around you without being burdened, without praying, without doing anything for the lost in your area, don't think that if I could just get to Bangladesh, I would be a missionary. Because if you can walk by them here and your heart uh, does not compel you to do anything, you need to go back and try to understand what's wrong in your heart. It's not that, that suddenly getting to Africa, you'll be seeing all the needs around you and your heart will just go out to them. Many a missionary has found when they reach the country that they finally want to go to that they are still very much the same person as they were before they went. Flying or getting on a boat in the olden days doesn't automatically make you a missionary. So as I'm laying out for us here today reasons for being a missionary, 
please don't think, oh, he's talking to the five people out of this, these 50 young people. He's talking to the five people that are actually going to go and spend their life overseas. Okay? Would to God it was more of you. Would to God that all of you had some opportunity to serve God overseas. But would to God even more than that, that all of us, wherever we're going to be, would engage for Christ's kingdom where we are. And these principles I'm laying out are not more powerful when you send them overseas than they are when, when you're here. These principles work wherever you are. And so my hope and desire is that they, they begin to build in your heart a desire to engage in people's lives for God's kingdom purposes, whether in your state or somewhere around the world. Does that make sense? I realize sometimes when we use this term missionary, people automatically put that out there as something up on a pedestal, like really special kind of people. We're not. Okay? Or it has to be overseas. It has to be with a different language. And most of the time, if you will research the lives of people that you know to be missionaries, you will find out that those people cut their teeth in ministry doing lots and lots and lots of local outreach. Okay, I could talk for an hour of the local outreach that prepared me for a life of service overseas. So I in no way look down on local outreach while I do feel a special burden for the exotic, faraway, unreached people groups of the world. But next week, apart from myself, as far as I know, none of you are going to be overseas. I guess, Brother Caleb, you'll go back to Quebec. That's not overseas, but it is a bit exotic. The rest of you will be back home where you live. And I don't want you to take these, these messages and say, that'll be a really good thing for me when I finally get on the field. Right? We want this to be immediately active in our hearts. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and our first point is simply, why am I a missionary? I'm a missionary because this world isn't all that there is. I'm a missionary because this world is not all that there is. Verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that immortality might be swallowed up of life. Paul says, I know something. If you remember last night where we closed out, the end of chapter 4, Paul says, these few moments of suffering that I'm walking through are working out for me a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I'm not sure how many more words you could use to describe that, but obviously the translation from the Greek, the translators from the Greek felt like they just had to keep adding a couple more superlatives, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal eternal weight of glory. We like to call my mom the exclamation mark queen because she, when she texts, she just fills her texts with exclamation marks. So we used to tease my mom and say, mom, if you say I had such a lovely salad for lunch, 
Then when you say, I love you so much, son, you're going to have to fill like three lines with the exclamation marks, you know? Because if you had a good salad with eight exclamation marks, then when you say, I love you, son, I expect, you know, three lines of exclamation marks because I think I'm more than the salad. Well, these, ver this verse, these verses that we were closing out with last night, it's like eight exclamation marks get added. It's working out a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And that ends chapter 4. And I think you know that the chapters are not part of the original writing of the scripture. We just jump right into the next chapter. We start with the word for. It's not really the beginning of anything new. He just says, for, how do I know that it's working out this exceeding and eternal weight of glory? For we know that if this earthly house gets dissolved, this being dissolved just means we're jumping over into the building not made with hands. Why are you a missionary, Paul? I'm a missionary because... I know that this world is not all that there is. And I want to give that challenge to each of us today. Am I living my life in a way that makes it obvious to others that I don't think this world is all there is? See, if this world is all there is, then you better live it up. Well, since we're Christians, we don't want to live it up in sin. Okay, so cancel out the sin part. You still better live it up. Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we are the most miserable people possible. But there is a resurrection from the dead. Amen. And we're not the most miserable people. This world is not all that there is. In fact, this world is a sorry excuse and a sorry comparison to what is going to be. And so Paul says, I'm a missionary because... I know that if this world, this body, this life I'm living in, this groaning, difficult existence, as soon as we get beyond this, we're walking into a building not made with hands. We're walking into a weight of glory, to an amount of bliss, to an amount of reward that will blow our minds. I really want to encourage you to live your life aware that this world is not all that there is. I know that theologically, every single one of you here believes that there's something called eternity, right? Raising your hands is helpful. It opens your heart. Thank you. We all believe that there, that there is something called eternity. We believe that there is an eternity for those who, who refuse to follow Christ or who don't know about Christ. We believe that there is an eternity of reward for those who have followed Christ and choose to engage in God's kingdom purposes. We believe that. That is mostly for us a theological reality. I wish that it could become a bit more tangible. Something that the young people who've come over to Ghana have said to me repeatedly is that as I interact with missionaries, I find that heaven seems to be really real for missionaries. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Move away from missionaries. Think about people that you know who have recently lost a loved one who went to heaven. I lost my father in 2012. I lost a little girl in 2014. When I look back on that period, totally aside from my missionary life of investing in heaven, when I look at that period, that was a period in which heaven seemed very close and real to me because people that I dearly loved had just gone there. Does that make sense? 
So we want heaven to be real. We do not want heaven to be some sort of a metaphysical reality that's out there. Like, yeah, it's out there, but we have no idea what it will be like, and we don't think about it, and it doesn't impact our daily decision-making. Paul says, I'm a missionary because I know that this world is not all there is. Thank God it's not everything that there is. I would love for you to take a jump forward this weekend in heaven becoming part of your reality. Because theologically, you and I believe that this life that we're living is the tiny little section of our reality, right? Because we believe that we have never dying souls. We believe that we will spend eternity in heaven, in reward, in bliss, in amazing beauty. And we believe that that eternity is so much longer compared to this world that Paul says, all the sufferings I'm going through are just light affliction and they won't last very long. How on earth could he say that? Because he lived believing that eternity was part of the experience of a Christian. Sometimes I feel like one of those Play-Doh machines. You remember those Play-Doh machines we used to have when we were children? You put the Play-Doh in it and then you squeeze down and it, it squirts out this little bit of Play-Doh. What I feel in my heart, I don't know how to communicate to you, but I wish that heaven could become part of what you view as your life. That instead of viewing your life just in terms of, well, I've got about 70 years, I've got 50 years left because I'm 20 years old, you could view eternity in heaven as part of your life experience and be planning on it and working towards it and looking forward to it and doing things today in light of eternity. Let me just give you this example. Maybe this will help to make practical what, what I mean. If you ever use a scheduler app in your phone or on a laptop, you know that you can, click, uh, you can click on an event that you've scheduled and drag it forward. Is everybody with me on that? You're like, I was planning to do this this week, but I can't do it this week. You click on it, and you can just drag it forward. And if you just keep scrolling, you can drag it forward to next year. You with me? I like to think of heaven as being that real. Because heaven is actually so much more real than this world that we're living in. We're actually living in something here which is just, it's, it's not real. It, it, it's, a, it's, in a, it's somewhat of a reality. It's somewhat tangible. But by comparison to heaven, this isn't real. And eternity is real. So sometimes when, when God asks me to give up things as a missionary, I literally, in my mind, click on an event an experience, something I would like to own. Guys, I'm, I'm just a normal human being, all right? There's a lot of things that I would have liked to do in my life that God has not allowed me to do because I went to the mission field at your age and now I'm a middle-aged man and I'm still there and there's lots of things I can't do. And if you say yes to God, even if God doesn't send you across the seas somewhere, God's going to ask you to give up lots of things. Well, if he's asking me to give them up just like, oh, I'm never going to experience, that's one thing. What about if I just click on that and move that over into the category called eternity? I have a wife who's very musical. She's never had the, the, the opportunity to cultivate her desire for musical things. But one of the things that she would just love is to play a harp. She would love to have a harp. Harps are expensive. Harps are very challenging to, to deal with in the climate in Ghana, which is 
varies between 5% and 100% humidity and changes rapidly. That really does a number on the wood. And so we've just looked at it and said, we're probably never going to have a harp. But when you talk to Christy about it, that's my wife, she will just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to do that in heaven. She just rescheduled that event. She rescheduled that experience into heaven. Do you think that's, do you think she's not going to be able to play a harp? You think there's no angels that would be willing to move over and let her play? That's what I'm talking about. Paul says, this world is not everything that there is. I'm living in light of another reality. And so that example of taking, I'd like to play a harp, and just moving that over into eternity has made it very easy for Christy and I to give up all sorts of things. So many things that we would have liked to own or experiences we would have liked to have. We've not said, oh, we're, we've had to give these up. We're never going to. We just, oh, no, well, eternity. I mean, this is just a short time. I can do that next year. I can do that in eternity. I can do that during all the ages. And please, just in case you're sitting here saying, I don't know if you're really going to be able to do that in heaven. I'm not sure either. I just know that my wife's not going to get to heaven and be crying because she's not given her own harp, all right? Whatever it is, it's going to be so mind-bendingly beyond anything that we could have asked or thought, we will not be disappointed. It is Satan's desire that heaven be something sort of fuzzy out there, you know, sitting on the clouds with the cupids. And then this world, oh, this world is real. Cars, things, people, dresses, stuff I want. Whereas the reality is, is that this is just like nothing. And that's real. Why am I a missionary? Because this world isn't all there is. Moving on. <clears throat> Verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says, we would actually rather go home. Paul says in another place, he says, I'd actually prefer if I'm making my choice, should I remain on this earth or should I go to heaven? I would actually rather go to heaven, but I've kind of looked at it and realized you need me here, so I'm going to stay here. I think sometimes more, most of us view eternity in terms of, well, I hope I can still experience X, Y, and Z before I go to heaven. I remember a country song I heard once many years ago, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go tonight. Probably most of us wouldn't voice that, but we are hoping that we can get married first. I mean, right? A lot of single young people say, well, I hope I can get married or hope I can have a family or I hope we can buy a house or whatever it is that we're hoping for. Paul says, we're willing rather to be absent from this body. Let's just go ahead and be absent from this body and be present with the Lord. My youngest daughter, Ruth, when she was like um, three to five years old, she spoke so much about heaven that Christy and I privately in our room would say, is God trying to prepare us for her to go home early? She would just spout out these little phrases at the breakfast tables like, I hope I die soon because I want to be small enough to sit on Jesus' lap. 
you know, as parents, you're kind of going, oh, I don't hope you die soon, but, but I mean, well, I mean, no, I hope you stay and suffer like the rest of us through 70 years on this earth. <laughs> no, okay, yeah, I'd like you to stay here, but I mean, what a pristine, pure little intention of a child who looking at the rest of life and everything that she could and would experience jumps forward and says, I'd like to die now so I can be small enough to sit on Jesus' lap. Out of the mouth of babes. Paul says we'd rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But he says, verse 9, Wherefore, because of all of this, we labor that whether we are present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Paul, why are you a missionary? Point two, because I want to please him. Paul says, I am working and living my life so that whether I'm present in this body or I'm absent from this body, whether I'm present with the Lord or I'm absent from the Lord, I may be accepted of him. I am laboring in this short period called life on this earth, I'm laboring, looking forward and saying whether I'm here or there, I want to be accepted of him. Now, if you're thinking, well, what we do doesn't earn us the acceptance of God. Don't view that word in terms of if I'm not leading souls to Christ, God doesn't accept me. Let, let's not get into that little corner, if you will. I think that there are so many verses in Scripture which highlight for us that we bring glory to God and we delight the heart of our elder brother Jesus when we are bringing people to him. And that's the context in which you should see this verse. Paul says, I'm spending my life making sure that whether I'm absent or present, I am living a life that will be acceptable to God. Why am I a missionary? Because I realize this world is not everything that there is. And my eye is on eternity. And I want to make sure that whether I'm in this body or I'm absent from this body, I'm acceptable to him. The verse that says, he that winneth souls is wise. I wonder what wisdom there is in winning souls. That verse comes out of the mouth and heart of God, right? And when God speaks, God speaks from eternity. See, I'm getting, I'm getting free enough to walk around up here. God speaks from eternity, right? Because God is an eternal God. His reality is eternity. This 6,000 years of this world has just barely been a blip on the screen of an eternal God. And God speaks out of eternity and says to us mere mortals living in this tiny little 70 years called life. And he says, hey! He that winneth souls is wise. Amen. Well, let's follow that wisdom. And then when we get to heaven, we will not have regrets. Whether I'm absent or present, I want to be accepted of him. Why are you a missionary, Paul? Because I want to please my Lord. Verse 10, 4. These are kind of like long run-on sentences. I wouldn't really want to be handed the English assignment of making sentence structures for Paul's writings. <laughs> Wherefore, 
for, because of, wherefore. I have no idea how to diagram that sentence, but you would need a, a large piece of paper. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or evil. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because of the terror of the Lord. Paul says, I am living my life aware that we and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The world does not recognize that fact. They choose to say there's no eternity. They choose to say there is no God. But the fact that they deny the reality of God and the reality of eternity does not affect reality at all. I said to somebody last night, if you jump out of an airplane firmly believing that there is no such thing as gravity, that does not mean you will float. You don't have to believe in gravity. It works. Well, you don't have to believe in the reality of the judgment seat of Christ for you to have to face it. Paul says, I believe it. And I believe here today, theologically, we all theologically agree that there is a judgment seat of Christ. Paul simply says, I am using the judgment seat of Christ and the fact that I know it's coming for me and for all the world, I'm using it as a motivation. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. See, the, the world doesn't know the terror of the Lord like we do. They don't know that much about God. They haven't read everything that we know about the judgment, but we know it. And so Paul says, because I am aware of the judgment seat and because I am aware of the eternal realities that will be decided at that judgment seat, because I recognize that someone's choice will either bring them into eternal bliss and reward in heaven or into incredible conscious torment, knowing that terror, I persuade men. Persuade is not a word just like, you know, hey, you know, if you want. Tell you about Jesus if you want. No, it's persuading. I am using everything that is in me to try to convince you. Follow Christ. Paul says, I persuade men because I know something of the terror of the Lord. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because I have this reality, Paul says, in my heart and life, I recognize that people who are without Christ are going to face the terrors of judgment and eternity, and that motivates me to persuade men. Because I know the terror of the Lord. If you were given the responsibility to guard a bridge on a rainy night, to guard a road on a rainy night after a bridge was out, is there anybody here who works in emergency, fire, EMS, okay? 
If it was your responsibility to guard a road in the middle of the night, a rainy, stormy night, when a bridge is out, and you flag down the cars, you have the flares there, maybe you've got your car blocking half the road, and you stop a vehicle, and you tell people, look, the bridge is out, and you have somebody who just says, I'm not listening to you, I'm going on through. I do not think that you as a human being that cares is capable of just saying, yeah, okay, it's neither here nor there to me, I'm just, yeah, the bridge is out. Right? Even those of you who are fairly introverted and fairly unemotional could probably put on quite a show if you realize this man and his wife are going to drive. They're going to drive right off. They're going to drive into the river. They don't believe me. They're not going to follow my instructions. They haven't seen what I've seen. I know it. The bridge is out. You just drive along and suddenly just whoo, drop right off. The road is gone. I believe you would put on quite a show, and that show that you would put on would be persuading because you saw something that they haven't seen. For some reason, they're acting nonchalant about something that just burdens you to no end. It will not happen on my watch. I was told to guard this road. How am I going to explain that people went through? And I was just like, yeah, it's, yeah whatever. Okay, I was just, yeah, just telling you. The bridge is out. If you don't follow Jesus, you're going to spend eternity in hell. You know, just neither here nor there to me, whatever you choose. Paul says, no, I know the terror of the Lord. I persuade men. I recognize that if you look at some of these motivations all by themselves, you might say they're not balanced. But recognize that over the course of last night and this morning, we're looking at about uh, 14 or 15 motivations, and they all worked in Paul's life. It would be a somewhat negative motivation to spend your whole life as a missionary just going from person to person because you know that this person is going to face the terrors of eternal judgment and punishment. But that's definitely not Paul's only motivation. Let's look at the next one. <clears throat> verse 13. Sorry, verse 12. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but we, give our, but we give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause." For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Paul says, we're making every effort here. If we seem to be beside ourselves, it's for this same reason. If we seem to be sober, it's for the same reason. Let me make that practical for you. I really care about all of you grasping the importance of the things that we're communicating this weekend, all right? If I thought that by standing perfectly still and laying out for you a quiet, case-by-case, 14-point outline. If I thought I could do that and that would convince you, I would stand here perfectly still and speak at a monotone and lay it out for you line by line. But if I thought that by standing on my head or somersaulting across this platform, I could help those truths to remain in your heart, I would make myself a fool like that. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, if I seem to be beside myself, if you're looking at me going, whoa, Paul, 
You are outside of your normal self. You are beside yourself. That's an old English way to refer to someone who seems to have gone beyond their senses. If I seem to be a little crazy, you're right. It's because of this cause. And if I seem to be sober and walking through things step by step, it's also for your cause. Because this is so important to me. And I'm willing to be a fool. And Paul says, I'm willing to be a fool. I just want to make sure that these things are communicated clearly. The love of Christ which is in me constrains me. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because God's love forces me. So I don't want to be forced. Well, this is not a force like an outside gun-to-your-head kind of force. This is an inside love that motivates you. Paul says, his love constrains me. I realize constrain is not a word that we use in everyday English, but I'm pretty sure we can take it apart. We can do the etymology. Strain. God's love is straining me. God's love is pulling me. God's love is motivating me beyond what I would otherwise be motivated. I really love these verses because... When you say, well, Paul was motivated by the love of Christ, it's so easy to say, what does that mean? Okay, Paul loved Christ so much that he wanted to bring people to Christ. He knew that, 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 that Christ loved the unreached peoples of the world so much. What does it mean for the love of Christ to motivate us? That can sound like way up there, and it's like, well, I'm just not that spiritual because the love of Christ doesn't really motivate me. Paul goes out and lays out exactly what he means. He says in verse uh, 15, we, in the end of verse 14 and verse 15, we judge that if Christ died for all, then everyone has the possibility of being saved. Paul says, this is a theological reality in my heart. I've looked at it. I've taken the words of Christ where he says that he died for everyone, that he's not willing that any should perish. And so Paul says, I simply apply that out into the world as I view it, and I realize all these people are people that Christ died for. All these people are people that Christ died for so that they would be able to stop living for themselves and begin to live for the glory of God. Paul says that is what strains him, pulls him. Look at Paul's life. What do you think was motivating Paul? I mean, he surely lived a very, very difficult life. And yet, he says this is what was, this is what was the force inside. This is what was creating the torque. It was the love of Christ in me. Not the love of Christ like some kind of, you know, hyper-spiritual, I'm motivated by the love of Christ. It was practical in Paul's life. The way it motivated Paul was just based on the simple theology that Christ died for everyone. That would be an excellent experiment for you to practice. When you see somebody that you naturally want to go, whew, Christ died for that person. Christ died for that person. Being in this little uh, storefront church building, at least that's kind of how I think of it, reminds me there are a couple of you here from a, a church where this story occurred, where the pastor of the church went early on a Sunday morning dressed as a homeless bum. 
and disguised himself so thoroughly with dirty clothes and grime and, you know, a hat down over his eyes and the way a homeless person would be. And he leaned up against a telephone pole right outside the door of a storefront church just like this in town. And one by one, every member of his church came to church, stumbled over him, pulled their children around him, looked at him as they went by into their church building. One little boy, bless him, and it would be a child, wouldn't it? Oh, God. It would be a child. A child went in and got a, a gospel track and I think a glass of water and brought it out to him. But the whole entire church came past the homeless man right outside the door and came into the building and started their worship service. Then the homeless man got up and went around the back of the church and changed his clothes and got up in the pulpit and said, did you any, anyone notice the homeless man? That was me. I, don't, I think he preached the message, but I don't think he would have needed to preach a message. I, I think it would have been good for the church to just get on its knees and not that church, my church, your church, our churches. Because we have far too much of an idea, which is like, oh, children, come over. Mm. Whether we do that spiritually or we do that physically, the attitude is, oh, my, let's get into the building and worship our God. Do you know that at that moment, the heart of the Lord Jesus was out there, leaned up against that pole beside that homeless man far more than in here. Do you know the song? In your costly temples praying, let thy kingdom come, we pray, are but words of idle meaning if with these we turn away. Boundless wealth to you is given from his hand that owns it all. But surely you didn't think the hand who owns it all would just give you this boundless spiritual wealth and his eyes wouldn't behold what you give back for everything that he's given to you. You know the song? I think we sang it yesterday, didn't we? Church of God, awake, arise. In your costly temples praying, and I'm not sure that a storefront church qualifies as a costly temple, but for us to walk and be like, oh, we're here with the people of God, all clean and neat. Did you notice that bum outside? How close did you really want those people to get to you before you would say, this church exists in this town, not just for all of us to feel good and notice how handsome and pretty and modest we are and then worship God in our perfection of holiness. No, churches exist for those people out there. Right? So Paul says, the love of Christ is practical in my life because I look at people like that and I say, Christ died for that person that person has the possibility of being saved. Amen? Amen? How does the love of Christ pull me to action? It pulls me to action by saying, Christ died for that person. Jesus hung on the cross for that person. Why are you a missionary? Because his love forces me. Verse 16. Wherefore, the sentence is still running on. Wherefore, 
Henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because of the Christ potential in everyone. Paul says, I used to look at human beings through physical eyes. Hey, actually, you want an honest confession? I used to even think of Christ that way. And we know who Paul was. Paul was the persecutor of the church. He used to look at Christ as like this man, carpenter, born in Nazareth, born out of wedlock. He used to look at him as a physical man. He says, I don't do him that way anymore. No, after they met him on the road to Damascus, there's no more of viewing Christ after the flesh. And he says, not only do I not view Christ after the flesh, I don't view anyone after the flesh anymore. What does that mean? After the flesh. After the flesh means I don't judge people through these physical eyes any longer. Oh, that's a Muslim. Oh, that's a drug addict. Oh, that's an immigrant. Oh, that's this kind of person. That's that kind of person. These people make me nervous. I don't judge people after the flesh anymore. Because I realize that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. So I now look at people saying, wonder what he would be like as a new creature. She could be a new creature. He could be a new creature. wonder how beautiful he or she would be in Christ. I don't judge people after the flesh anymore. Naturally, we all judge people after the flesh. That is just human nature. You sit in an airport like I've been doing lately and thousands of people are streaming by you and if you do not actively activate, probably not the right way to say that, if you do not purposefully activate your spiritual eyesight that all of these people could become new in Christ, you're just slotting them. Like, oh, that's a hippie. Oh, purple-haired person. Oh, that's a drug. Oh, there's a Muslim. Oh, that's a big black man. Oh, that's an immigrant. And you're just slicing and dicing. And sometimes you're judging them negatively. And sometimes you're just putting them in all these little physical boxes. Paul says, I don't look at people after the flesh anymore. I view them for their potential in Christ. That is revolutionary. I now start looking at people from who they could become in Christ, not who they are. Story is told, humorous story, from one of the books that we study on scent, of um, two older white ladies who were in a tall apartment building and happened to enter an elevator with, I think it's like Michael Jordan, a very tall black man, and two of his bodyguards. So these the elevator door opens, there's two white, there's two white ladies in the, the elevator, and these three giant black men walk into the elevator. And in many places in America, still, there is this, oh, three big black men. And so these two white ladies are standing there in fear, like, oh my goodness, are we safe in this elevator? We gotta go down 20 floors. And this big black man says, hit the floor, and both women, down onto the ground. 
hit the ground thinking this is our worst fear is coming to pass. These three giant black men, the first word they say is, hit the floor, and they fell down on the floor. And then the big black man said, no, like the floor, hit the floor. Which button do you want to get down? Which, which floor do you want? It's humorous. But can you understand that through a certain lens, they were like, this is two middle-aged, older white ladies, three huge black men, body, you know, the guys that would protect somebody like Michael Jordan are going to be much bigger than me. Three big black men walk in. The first word out of their mouth is exactly what the white ladies thought was going to happen. Hit the floor. They smack down on the floor. This is exactly what we thought was going to happen. That's judging people after the flesh in the extreme. But you know what? We're not all that far from that. We judge people through the, uh, through the mindset of, oh, they're Muslim. They're immigrants. Oh, they look like they're this kind. They're that kind. Paul says, I stopped doing that because I believe that Christ died for all. So when I see the, 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 the salvation of Christ being laid out across all of humanity, I now look at people through the eyes of what potential they have in Christ. Can you see that that could be revolutionary? Look at people and realize, wow, this person in Christ will be beautiful. That's a real motivation for missions. I see someone who physically I would look at them and say, oh my, disgusting. But I see them through spiritual eyes and say, what would that person be in Christ? Something that will help you to do that is to, to get involved in people's lives until you have a few people that you have watched God change. And then it starts being easier for you to look at down and outers and realize what they could become in Christ. Maybe you need to read some more testimonies of people who've gotten saved out of terrible backgrounds so that when you see a drunk drug addict or a drunk on the side of the road, you might say, could be a brother Denny in waiting, my father. My father was a drug addict before he became a Christian and pastored for 40 years before he died. It makes it a little bit easier when you have some people like that in your life to look at somebody and go, well, that's what Brother Denny was before he got born again. I don't judge people after the flesh. We're moving on to the end here. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because of Christ's potential in everyone. Verse 18, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I believe verse 18 and 19, I think verse 19 simply repeats verse 18. That's a common thing in Eastern literature. If you divide the world into the West and the East, the Bible was written in the East. You and I live in the West. It's a common literary construct in the East to state something and then restate it slightly different. So verse 18 and 19 are just restatements of each other. Verse 18 says, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and then given to us a ministry of reconciling others. Then he clarifies it, verse 19. You, you want to think this through more? To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their, their trespasses onto them. 
And then he's given that to us. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because it is what Christ is doing. It's what God's doing. It is your father's business. Jesus said, my father works and I work. If you'd like to know what your father is doing, this is what your father is doing. God is, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That's what God is doing. Yes, there's, there's church and there's outreach, and there's miracles, and there are sick people being healed, and there's all sorts of elements that flow out of that. But what is God doing? God is, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. After man sinned in in Genesis, God started an effort to reconcile man to himself. He did that through the Old Testament systems, through the Abrahamic covenant, through the Mosaic law, through God's people, the Israelites. And then when you get to the New Testament, we start with Christ. God is now in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is the story of what has been happening for the last 2,000 years. What is God doing? He's reconciling the world to himself through Christ. What's God going to be doing tomorrow? He's going to be reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because it's what God is doing. That should be good enough reason, good enough motivation. I am convinced that this is what God is doing, and I want to get on board with what God is doing. I want to do what God is doing in my generation. What is God doing in my generation? He's reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And when you become convinced of that, that becomes a great motivating force. I'm simply joining God in what he is doing. Verse 18, first he reconciles us to himself, then he gives to us the ministry of reconciliation. What a wonderful thing. We are asked to represent a God who reconciles. You know, we could have been asked to represent a God who does a lot of other things. Imagine being a Jeremiah the prophet whose responsibility it is to go around Israel and just tell them, death and destruction. That's not the ministry we've been given. We've been given the ministry of bringing people back to a God who wants to be reconciled with them. So Paul says, I'm a missionary because that's what God is doing. And our last point, I'm a missionary because he has handed to us that word. The end of verse 19, he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by or through us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Chapter 6, verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because God took that word of reconciliation and now handed it over to us. Boundless wealth to you is given. There is no greater wealth than to have been handed the sacred trust of holding the gospel, the word of reconciliation. It has been entrusted to us. I don't believe biblically that you can argue that we've been given a little bit of that sacred trust, that most of that sacred trust is with God. God miraculously brings people to himself without human intervention. That's 
the rare situation. I don't think you can argue, argue biblically that the gospel has largely been handled, handed to the angels and the angels are the ones who bring people to Jesus. Again, those are the rare situations. The normal is that God has handed to us the word of reconciliation. It's ours. It's a sacred trust handed to us. And God is going to come back and ask what we've done with that trust that he's handed to us. Paul, why are you a missionary? Because God gave to me the word of reconciliation. Why are you a missionary? Because I was the one in the community which was handed the medicine that can cure Ebola. Do you remember Ebola? That's a few years ago now. What a terrible disease. Can you imagine being the one entrusted in your community with the medicine that would cure Ebola and you wouldn't take it seriously? What would you think of me if I told you that that young man who has filariasis, he, that the medicine's gonna cost $2 each year? What would you think of me if I told him, I'm not paying for your medicine? So you're not gonna help somebody keep their eyesight for $2 a year? I think every single one of you would hand me that $2 to go help that young man. This wealth has been handed to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been handed to us. And Paul says, I'm a missionary because God handed it to me. And I now hold the right and the responsibility to distribute the life-saving medicine, the eternity-saving medicine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've looked at about 15 points across these two chapters. I hope and pray that they strengthen in your heart a desire to start working out the gospel from your life out to the people around you. Yes, there are unreached across the seas and around the world that need the gospel. But right now where you are, for many of you, this is made practical by reaching out in Cheyenne or in your city in Missouri or Utah, or whatever other states you've come from. All of these principles are true right now. You don't need to be 50 years old and an old missionary from Africa before these work. You don't have to be in Bangladesh or some other place on the other side of the world before these work. These are all true, and they work now. And I'm praying that these will become sources of motivation in your life. In Jesus' name. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you this morning for the privilege of studying these two chapters together and drawing, I believe, uh, 15 or 16 different motivations that motivated Paul and that should motivate us. Father, I pray that we would be alive to the power of your gospel working out in the world. I pray, Lord, that you would um, put a taste in the mouth of these young people, a desire to reflect your glory by bringing other people to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would be motivated, that missionary service would not be one more great burden put upon us by missionaries who share about the needs of the world, but rather an incredible opportunity to join you in what you're doing. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attention.